I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done, just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Thank you, Q. Well, a good morning, everyone. Happy New Year, Merry Christmas, all that stuff. Um, if it's been a while since I've seen you, it's, it's, it's lovely to be back. Uh, it's starting to feel a bit more like summer. The cicadas are getting deafening, so that's, that must mean that we, uh, we're truly here. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we'll jump into the passage. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, we just thank you once again for an opportunity to gather as your people to come before your word. And Lord, I pray that this morning as we do this, Lord, you might open uh, a word in our hearts. Lord, wherever we might be um, at this point in our journey with you, Lord, I pray that you'll have a word and a message for us. Lord, I pray that you'll help me speak truthfully and clearly of your word here this morning. And we just pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, there it is. Beautiful. Well, um, yeah, the faith of the centurion, a, a little story, a short little story in uh, the gospel. We read Matthew's version. It pops up in Luke as well, um, but a very interesting one. But let me, let me start with a story that seems entirely unrelated. Back uh, in the early 1900s in uh, a desert in Nevada, there was this long, seldom used track uh, that crossed through the desert. In the middle of this track, there was a water pump, right? A very important thing, because those who are travelling this track halfway along could restock their water. A lot of people relied on this pump as they got, uh, as they were travelling along this this path. And on this pump, there was a note, and the note read, "This pump is all right as of June 32. I put a new sucker on it." And it ought to last at least five years. But the washer dries out and the pump got to be primed. Under the white rock, I buried a bottle of water. Out of the sun, cork end up. There's enough water in it to prime the pump, but not if you drink some first. Pour about one-fourth, let us soak the leather wet. Pour the rest in medium fast and pump like crazy. You'll get your water. The well has never run dry. Have faith. When you get your water up, refill the bottle and put it back for the next fella. Signed, Desert Pete. P.S. Don't drink the water first. Prime the pump. You'll get all you can hold. Sometimes in life, what we need more than anything else is to have a bit of faith. Uh, we have this story of this centurion a man who comes to Jesus uh, with such a faith in him that Jesus himself is amazed at what he finds. In this part of the story, um, in the way Matthew is retelling it, uh, faith is a, a theme that pops up a number of times, particularly in chapter 8. Just before this story, we had the little story of um, the leper who comes to Jesus to be healed. And uh, he says to Jesus, um, 
if you will, if, if you wish, you can make me well. You know, he comes to him with faith. And here we have uh, another story of a centurion who comes to him with faith, but comes to him um, saying, there is someone in my household who is unwell. So we have these two stories next to each other. Both of these two stories are about two outcasts that come to Jesus in faith. The first is outcast because he's a leper and he's a disease. The second is an outcast because he's a centurion and therefore a Gentile. The first is excluded because of his health. The second is excluded because of his race. If you read Luke's telling of this story of the centurion, um, the centurion sends his Jewish friends first, those whom he's, he's, who he's um, you know, formed a good relationship with, to go to Jesus to see if it's okay for the centurion to come. Matthew kind of jumps straight to this conversation between Jesus and the centurion. Uh, and we'll pick it up in verse 6. The centurion says, Lord, he says, my servant lies at home paralysed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, Shall I come to heal him? I think what's important here is we see that the centurion never asks a question of Jesus. He just presents a problem. He doesn't say, Jesus, can you do this or can you do that? He comes to Jesus and presents this problem. My servant is paralysed, is sick. Jesus kind of jumps to the implied question, um, but there is a complication there's a complication which I think comes out a bit more clearly in Luke's reading than it does in the Matthews one. But the complication is this. Um, a Gentile person approaching a Jewish rabbi is a taboo thing. right? It's, it's already a bit of a taboo thing for him to come to Jesus with a request. Not only that, um, asking a, a rabbi to do something for him is taboo. And then something which is far worse, is asking him to come to his home. Because if you are a Jewish person that goes into the home of a Gentile, you have become ceremonially unclean. You need to go through all the process of becoming unclean. So the situation is much more complicated than it might first seem when we read it. Jesus already has his enemies gathering around, watching carefully what he's doing, and potentially they might use this as an opportunity further to muddy the water for those who are starting to believe in Jesus. Oh, this guy, he, he goes to Gentiles' houses, he walks around unclean, you know, like this is a big thing in their culture. It's this tricky situation, and you can read this interaction a few different ways. Um, but in the centurion approaching Jesus in this way, there's more at stake than you might first realise. Um, verse 8 down to 10. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve you, deserve to have you under my roof. But just say the words and my servant will be healed. For I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. And I say to my servants, do this and he does. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Maybe the centurion is kind of aware of the situation that he's putting Jesus in when he approaches him. Maybe he recognises he needs to give Jesus a way out um, to not find himself in this sticky situation of being 
ceremonially unclean, going to a Gentile's house, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I think it's more likely that this is just an honest answer that the centurion gives to Jesus when Jesus says, shall I come to your house and heal him? His honest answer is, is Jesus, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to have you in my house. It's a great honour to have someone of power or of, or of importance come to your place. You know, even today, I think that's true. If the king came to your house, it would be a big deal, wouldn't it? You know, you'd, you'd, you'd make sure all of the toilets were well and truly cleaned, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, so it is in this circumstance. And I think the centurion is, is, recognises this invitation for Jesus to come to his house. And he says, oh, I'm just not worthy. You know, maybe it was just like that. He's like, I can't let the Messiah come over because the bathrooms are filthy. You know, maybe it was that kind of a thing. But it seems um, more like he just recognises the, the gravity of this situation. Um, and he knows that Jesus is a man of authority, that his authority is bigger than what is just around him. And it seems like this is something that um, is first picked up by the centurion, or Jesus at least highlights it that no one else has picked up on this fact. The centurion recognises the authority of Jesus that um, it's not that he needs to, uh, you know, say a magic spell or put a, put a magic hand on someone to heal them, but just through his will, the sick can be healed. Through his will, those who are unwell can be well. And Jesus is amazed, I think, perhaps of the faith that he has, but also of the understanding that the centurion has in him. Like, he, he comes to Jesus with a new level of understanding that he hasn't seen from all of the Jewish people around him who have come. And that's what surprises him, that this Gentile, this centurion, seems to have more faith in me than even all of the Jewish people around. Um, he goes on in verse 11, where he says, I say to you, that many will come from the east and the west. They will take their place at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Once again, we get this imagery of the heavenly banquet. I've mentioned that a few times over the past few weeks. This, this, this imagery of this feast in heaven, this, this imagery that's used for eternal life, this banquet. And in this image that Jesus is painting, as you look around the table, what Jesus is saying is you will see faces that are from all over the world. You will see faces from the east and from the west, from the north, from the south. They will not just be all Jewish faces. They will not just be all faces from the kingdom of Israel, but they will be faces from all over the nations. All will be at that feast. They will have a seat at the table, not just the sons of Abraham. And what he's highlighting to those who are there that day is that race is not the criteria with which you'll be called into God's family into uh, the eternal feast, but faith is the criteria by which you'll be called into his family. Faith, not race, is the key to being one of God's children. Uh, he goes on in verse 13. He says to the centurion, Go, let it be done, just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Faith is the new currency for God's people. It's not the law like it once was. It's not your heritage. It's not your lineage, whom you're descended from, which was so important to all the Jewish people. It's not more knowledge in the scriptures than other people. It's not 
having, um, living a, a pious life. But the thing that Jesus highlights on a number of occasions, more than anything else, is those who have faith in him as one of the greatest things that he values, one of the most important things in this new era. Chapter 8 is actually filled with all of these examples of faith or lack of faith. The leper comes to Jesus in faith. If you are willing, you can heal me. The centurion, risking all of the kind of social taboos that he does, uh, comes to Jesus uh, and says, I know that you can just heal my servant by saying it so. A little bit later in the chapter, you have the story of um, Jesus calming the storm. The disciples are in the boat. The waves are crashing. Jesus is asleep. They wake him up, fearing that they're going to sink. And Jesus says to them, oh, ye of little faith. Right? This kind of this theme of faith pops up time and time again for the people. And we see that what Matthew is highlighting and what Jesus is showing to, uh, to all of those around him is this new era of faith is being born. When above all else, above all of the other things which we, we value and see as important as being children of God, faith seems to be the foremost important thing that you can have. The New Testament talks a little bit about faith, doesn't it? There's that great passage in Hebrews in uh, chapter 11, which goes on at length in faith, and it starts by saying, Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is this important key in this new era. We have faith in all sorts of things, don't we, in our lives in general. Um, you know, we, we have faith in our currency. We have faith that this little piece of plastic is actually worth something. We have faith that all of the ones and zeros flying around somewhere in the ether actually mean something when I tap my, tap my phone onto a terminal somewhere. Um, we have faith that a car is going to get us to our destination, that a plane will take off and will land. Um, we have faith that the things that the doctors are telling us, advising us, are right. We have faith that the rain will fall. We have faith that the sun will come up in the morning. Those things perhaps are a bit more straightforward and clear, but what Jesus is asking us is a bit more tricky to put a finger on. What does it look like to have faith in God? What does it look like to have faith like this centurion? Faith like some of the things that are highlighted here in this passage. It can be a bit tricky to put a, a finger on, but what we do know is this. Faith in God is about trust. That faith in God primarily is about trust in God. It's having a disposition of trust in God throughout our lives that God will work his will on our behalf and a trust that whatever happens will be for the good. Maybe not easy, maybe not what we want, but for the good and for his purpose. Faith in God is seen more in um, what he does for us than what we do for him and our trust and acceptance in the lot that God has given us in life. You know, as is highlighted in the passage which we've just read, for some, faith means uh, healing from injury and from illness. But we know for others, it does not. For some reason, God um, will uh, heal some and leave some unwell. Uh, Paul the Apostle is a good example of this. I always think of him in this, 
in thinking about this issue because uh, he has healed many and cast out demons and done all sorts of things. But a number of occasions, Paul is sick and unwell and has ailments that God does not uh, free him from. Faith for some means being healed and for some it does not. But faith isn't about which outcome we receive. It's about how we respond regardless. How we respond regardless to what the answer to our prayers might be. You know, for a long time, I kind of thought of people um, for whom had great faith were those who kind of got the right responses from God. You know, like got the responses they want. You know, like they would pray for whatever it was and they would pray boldly and they would come in faith and they would pray those things. I was like, wow, look at the faith of that person, you know. Like they pray to God boldly and God responds to them with what, uh, with what they've asked. But as I get on in life, I actually kind of think to myself, well, I think the opposite is more true. I think great faith in God is those who can continue to trust in God even when they don't get the answers that they're looking for. Even when the answers to prayer might be, no, my grace is sufficient. Those are the ones who have real great faith that still uh, put their trust and their faith in God, even when the answers aren't what they want, even when life is filled with challenges and hardships. To believe that God is at work in uh, your life and in our lives, even in the mundane and even in the difficult. That's what an example of great faith is. And we can see that in the Bible, that, that, that chapter in um, Hebrews 11. It lists this huge list of Old Testament figures and all of the ways with which they lived by faith. It talks about Abraham and Noah and Moses and Abel and Jacob and Joseph and all this kind of stuff. And it lists all their victories. You know, Moses, by faith, parted the sea and by faith they won battles and by faith they did all these amazing things, all these victories. Yeah, they lived by faith and did all these great things. But at the end of this long section, it finishes with this little bit here, verses 36 and 37 talking about these heroes of the faith. It says, Some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The writer of Hebrews lists how um, their great faith is shown in all of these victories, but he finishes by saying their great faith is shown in their defeats. The greatness of their faith is shown in their hardships. Living by faith is knowing that God can do miraculous things, miraculous and amazing things, but whether he does, uh, he does or he does not, um, his will is still being done and putting our trust in that. We've just stepped into uh, a new year. And I don't know about you, but sometimes when you step into a new year, you start to kind of evaluate What's coming? What's ahead? Where you're at? What's going on? And perhaps um, for you, as you look into this new year, you look ahead and you see that there are some hurdles to come. Perhaps you look ahead and you see that there might be some, some personal hurdles that are ahead. There might be some professional hurdles. Perhaps you look ahead to the year that's to come and you think, oh, there's some storms brewing that one, in one way, shape or form are going to need to be confronted. Perhaps there's some big decisions that need to be made that you've been putting off for a while, but you know they can't be put off forever. 
Perhaps as you look at the year ahead, you see a crossroad and you know that there will be some tough decisions that need to be made. Well, whatever the challenge is this year, we know one thing that is true, is that the most important thing we can do this year is to grow in our faith in God. That whatever might come this year, be it good, be it hard, be it difficult, to know that we can place our faith in God because he is good and his will be done. There's that great passage in Romans that we know God's uh, Christ's call for us is to know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Whatever we might face this year, whatever is in front of us, we know that one of the most important things for us to grow in is our faith and our trust in God. Our faith that his will is working in this world. Our faith that he is active and moving. That he has a plan whether things are going well or whether things are not going so well, whether things are easy or whether things are hard. Whether the answer to prayer is yes or whether the answer to prayer is no. To know that he is still with us to the very ends of the age. Can I uh, call the band up? I'm going to pray and we'll have our final song together. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord, we just thank you, um, yeah, Lord, that you, you call us into something that is far greater than just knowing some verses from the Bible. You call us into something that is far greater than just um, turning up on a Sunday morning. Uh, you call us into having a faith in you that encompasses our whole lives. Lord, encompasses all that we do. It, it, it encompasses the big challenges. It encompasses the small things. It, in, it encompasses those little conversations we have with the friends and the family around us. And it encompasses those huge life-changing decisions that we need to make. Lord, we pray in 2023 that we might be people that grow in our faith, that grow in our trust for you, that whatever might be ahead of us, Lord, let us trust uh, that you are in it that your will is at work amongst it. Lord, that your purposes and your plans are not for naught and they cannot be stopped or put aside. But Lord, help us to be people that can rest in this, that can have a, a trust and a faith that brings peace in our hearts. Lord, I thank you that we as your people can come before your word in this way and, and hear stories that were told thousands of years ago but have them fall um, so, so relevantly in our lives today. Lord, just pray as we head out this week, we might continue to ponder that in our hearts, how it is we might grow faith more in our lives. Thank you for this now, Lord. Pray this in your son's name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final song together.